Welcome back to the High Heat Stats Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us. We're going to have a discussion with our good pal, Adam Dorowski, coming up on a few different topics. If you want to see some of the uh, stuff that we talk about, I'm going to put links to it on our website uh, on highheatstats.com. Go to the podcast page and you're going to see the uh, Gary Thurman baseball card we talk about and, and some other stuff. Also, um, if you go to highheatstats.com, you are going to see occasional posts by Adam on his out-of-the-park baseball league that he's running. He is simulating starting in 2013 uh, in the game, 2013. He's simulating a league that is identical to the major leagues but has added into it a whole bunch of players that he added based on High Heat Stats writers and readers. Uh, including myself, him, and Dan, and Brian, and a whole bunch of other people. And uh, you can see as he goes through the years, 2013, 2014, where we all go in terms of being drafted into the minors, up to the majors. Um, Pretty cool stuff Uh, and fun. Adam's just doing it on his own and then posting updates, and uh, it's pretty neat. You can also see that my player in the game has very low intelligence so you can tell that the game is uh is really quite a good model of of real life um you know that out of the park sponsors us on the blog you can see a link to buying their software which is out now and if that's something that interests you after looking at adam's stuff great uh go ahead it helps us out gets us a few bucks if you buy it through that link and uh if not well then uh Screw you. No, not really. Anyway, uh, we'll get right on to the podcast and uh, enjoy. I was hoping that you could explain to me a little bit more about the Veterans Hall of Fame voting. Um, we were talking about it a little bit, but I I don't really get how the, the, the old Veterans Committee doesn't exist anymore, you were telling me. Can you explain it to me better? Yeah, sure. Uh, did you want me to do that on the podcast or a little bit beforehand? Oh, no, we're recording already. Oh, <laughs> well, then, yes, I guess on the podcast. Uh, so the Veterans Committee a few years ago was replaced with actually three separate committees that are based on eras. There's the Pre-Integration Era Committee, which uh, met last year and inducted Deacon White, Hank O'Day, and Jacob Rupert. And there's the uh, Golden Era, which is 1947 to 1972, players who basically had their uh, their peaks within that stretch of time. And then there's the uh, expansion era, which is basically the DH era, 73 to present. And that's the one that's meeting uh, this year. And basically uh, a group of, I believe it's 16 uh, veterans, researchers, others in the field get together during the winter meetings and deliberate for a day or two and vote. 
and every member of the committee gets up to five votes. There's only 12 people on the ballot. So that's a, a tricky part. It's players, umpires, and managers all on one ballot. So there's a, a selection process beforehand that chooses the ballot. So even the, the selection of the ballot can be a little controversial because you can get a lot of good players left off. So you were saying to me how only expansion era, uh, only the expansion era ballot ever adds new players, and that's simply because obviously nobody nobody is playing in those time periods that are already over. Right. Um, And so it's not it's not just veteran ball players like the old veterans committee used to be. Right. Uh, And, And. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, that's true. For example, the pre-integration era, they actually added some researchers uh, onto the onto the uh, committee because that was really useful to you know to evaluate some 19th century figures. That they, they went to uh, Peter Morris was one, for example. I forget who the other researcher was, but they've done extensive research on those topics. And do, and so, do they rotate every three years? I got that sense from what you said. They do. Is it- so it's once. Uh, one committee meets each year, so the um, the expansion era one that's going on right now. The last time they met was 2011-2012 uh, off season. That's when they inducted Pat Gillick. Uh, and so, how does the how does the how does the ballot get made up? You talked about it being controversial sometimes. You know what? That part I'm not exactly sure about. Uh, some sort of committee at the Hall of Fame puts together the ballot of the 12 people that will be el- eligible to be selected, and then everybody can vote for up to five. And so who's on the expansion ballot under consideration right now, and when does that get announced? I'm not sure when the ballot gets announced. It's going to be um, probably relatively early in the off season. But just to run down the names uh, from the last ballot, uh, it was Pat Gillick, of course, who was uh, inducted. And uh, another owner was George Steinbrenner. Billy Martin uh, was on as a manager. And then for players, we had Dave Concepcion, Vida Blue, Steve Garvey, Ron Goodry, Tommy John, Al Oliver, Ted Simmons, and Rusty Staub. Hmm. Interesting. Clearly, um, Simmons is the guy that should have been put in. Clearly, yes. Uh, although uh, the only um, results they announce are players that received at least um, 25% of the vote. And the only player that actually received 25% was Dave Concepcion, who had 50%. Oh, I'm sorry, Marvin Miller was also on the ballot. Uh, he had 68.8% of the vote, so he fell one vote shy on his last chance while he was still alive. And... I'm sorry, I know you already said this, but I'm confused. So they're they're doing an expansion era again now? Yes, this coming off season. I was, and do we know who's on that ballot or we don't? We don't yet. They're going to release a new ballot. I assume it's going to have several of the names that were already on the previous ballots, but they might put on some new candidates. There are several new candidates that are newly eligible as well. I could talk about those if you'd like. Yeah, and what makes them newly eligible? So the fact that they're newly eligible is essentially what happens is if you've been retired for five years and you've been on the ballot for 15 years, after that you're eligible to go to one of these committees. Now, any player that was bumped off of the ballot before the 15 years, they still have to wait those 15 years. 
So, for example, uh, Dave Parker, who was just on the last Hall of Fame ballot, he's going to be on this ballot. But also um, Rick Russell, who was on the ballot a long time ago. I forget what year he was on the ballot. He was one and done, but he still had to wait the full 15 years, and now he's eligible for the Veterans Committee. Uh, interesting. So some of the new names eligible for the first time. So I touched on uh, Russell uh, and Parker. Also, uh, Willie Randolph, Fred Lynn, Chet Lemon, Keith Hernandez, Dwight Evans, Brian Downing, Jack Clark, Dan Quisenberry are a few of the, the big names. I would assume the big those guys, wait, those guys are all first-time eligible? Yeah, they, they all retired within a three-year period. So that's this is the first time that they're eligible this time. Right, 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 right. Interesting. Yeah, usually it's one year at a time, but because they're staggered like this, that's why you've got larger clumps of players getting on the ballot. Right, so if it's the five-year, five years after they retire, and then 15 years either on the ballot or not on the ballot, Right. Plus, plus a possible variable of two to three years, depending on when the last committee was. Correct. You're looking at players who basically retired 20 to 23 years ago. Right. Which makes sense. Interesting. Now, there's a whole other group of candidates, and this, I think, is the most interesting one. And this is the players that were eligible to be on the last ballot but weren't in the final 12. And these names are very interesting. So I'll run through a bunch of these. You got Buddy Bell, uh, you got Bobby Bonds, Burt Campanaris, Cesar Cedeno, Ron Say, Jose Cruz, Daryl Evans, Bobby Gritch. Hard to believe he wasn't on the last ballot, but he wasn't. Toby Hara, uh, Jerry Kuzman, Thurman Munson, Greg Nettles wasn't on the ballot, which is a little shocking too. Reggie Smith, Gene Tennis. Louis Tiant and Wilbur Wood. So those guys were, were all eligible to be on the last ballot, but were not on the last ballot. Right. Some of these guys have been on ballots previously, like Louis Tiant. Actually, I wonder if Louis Tiant, his career kind of tears the, uh, the golden era and expansion era, so I think he could possibly appear on either ballot. But, but uh, he, he could be on this ballot, I believe. Interesting. He's gotten moderate support from the veterans of the, in the past, like somewhere in like the 50% range. Yeah. I mean, so what is your, what is your overall thinking about these committees? Are they, I mean, it seems to me, generally speaking, to be more effective than what the old veterans committee was, which just seemed to be a bunch of old players in a room with no guidance and no rules doing whatever they felt like and ignoring whatever they felt like. This seems a little bit more well-reasoned to me, and, and at the very least, it seems more, more amenable, more amenable to a, a well-reasoned argument for a particular player um, having an actual impact. Right. So, I, what, what do you think? Yeah, I think uh, the results from the last couple of years have been very encouraging. We've actually got really good candidates getting in the Hall of Fame again. We had a stretch there. I mean, the last time the slash A Veterans Committee inducted a living ball player was Bill Mazeroski. So that, mm -hmm. that's a big problem. Basically, they weren't letting anybody in for years, and they were just basically letting people die before they got in. So Deacon White, Ron Santo, for example. Uh, the last few years, Pat Gillick's gotten in. Uh, I 
that's a decent selection, I guess. I don't, I don't care too much about owners getting into the Hall of Fame, but, uh, there were weird choices for the players that were on that ballot, certainly. I would have picked, uh, Simmons and probably Tommy John as well. Uh, the next year we got Ron Santo and Minnie Minoso came very close, so that was encouraging. Uh, Interesting. if not disappointing that he didn't actually get in. The White Sox were convinced he was going to get in, but he fell one or two votes shy. And then last year we had Deacon White, Hank O'Day, and Jacob Rupert get in. But what did you say? It's 16 voters on the on the actual committee? Yes. And is it the same 75% required? Yes. So, yeah, it's really – it's obviously a much, much, much smaller pool than the traditional Hall of Fame voting. So, <laughs> I mean, each each person there uh, carries, what is it, six and a quarter percentage points. Right. So – and uh, you know everybody's everybody's in the room discussing it too, so you don't have like these these you know vigilantes. Oh, you know, I'm not going to vote for anybody. You know those people just wouldn't be asked back if that happened. So that it's actually people working together to actually induct really good people into the Hall of Fame, and I think that works out well. And so the committee members change then. Uh, yeah, there are several people that seem to be on every year, but there's usually some new faces as well. Right, and that's sort of like the um, the Hall of Fame voting and the uh, the yearly seasonal award voting. Sort of writers come and go, and some stay, and it's not really. Uh, I haven't talked to anybody who seems to have a very clear picture on how that process is determined. But there's things like what what your your point about these 16 people getting together and talking about it is really encouraging. We were talking, some of us on Twitter, to uh, Paul Hoynes, who is a, a writer in Cleveland. He's, the, he's an Indian beat writer for the, I believe, for the Plain Dealer. And he, we, we were talking about Jack Morris, and he was just saying, most wins in the 80s. Like, he's definitely getting my Hall of Fame vote, which is obviously a really, <laughs> a really tired argument and not one that holds very much water under scrutiny. And... You know, it was me and it was Dan and it was somebody else who were sort of going back and forth with Paul. And at some point, I tweeted to Paul, and I can't remember the exact years, but I said, if you shift that window, instead of it being 1980 to 1989, if you shift it three years earlier or three years later, and maybe it was, maybe it was two years, maybe it was four years, I can't quite remember, but the the wins leader is Ron Guidry for the slightly earlier window, and Frank Viola yeah, for the slightly later window. Frank Viola, I know, is just a year or two after that. It's just pretty funny. Right, and it's like, um, and I don't think, you know, I wonder if Paul Hoynes has voted for those guys for the Hall of Fame. But he, of course, didn't respond to that point of mine. He responded to other points. He responded to some things that Dan tweeted to him. But it makes me so frustrated because... Paul's a reasonable guy. He's a smart guy. He's been around for a long time. He's, you know, he's he's polite. He's professional. He's smart. But I really wish that I could engage him directly in a conversation where I can say something and actually hear what he says back. Maybe he'll change my mind. Maybe I'll change his mind. Maybe neither of us will change the other's mind. But I would at least really like to be able to have a dialogue with him. And, and it's, it's a good point you make that that's happening in the Veterans Committee now. Yeah, that that is very encouraging. And one good thing is, regardless, we are going to get new inductees this year from the Veterans Committee because 
the player's pool, as impressive as it is, is nothing compared to the manager pool. Yeah. Because yeah, Billy Martin was the only manager on there last time. But this year, we got Joe Torre, Lou Pinella, Bobby Cox, and Tony La Russa, who are all eligible. Right, and and I'm hard-pressed to think of an argument against either of those four, any of those four. Yeah, I think uh, Pinella will probably miss out just because I don't see four managers going in. Uh, Torrey and Cox are locks. Um, and Larusa, maybe they'll put the DUI against him. I don't know. Gosh, I can't imagine that. And he's, I mean, he's won World Series with different teams, and uh, I. It's funny; those three I mean, guys are in the top five all time in manager wins. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. Somebody was saying to me the other day that they can't, and you might have even been a part of this conversation on Twitter. I can't remember that they couldn't vote for Todd Helton because of his DUI. I'm thinking to myself. How many – and actually, Mark Knudsen, you remember him? He was a pitcher for the Brewers. Yeah. He actually chimed in on this, the person who said that, and said, you think there aren't any drinkers in the Hall of Fame? Like, I don't understand how you can hold a DUI against Todd Helton for lots of reasons. But the two I would make flat out – and the same this holds for Larusa as well. The two I would hold flat out are, A, it's not unusual at all among that population. So how – you know, it's like – saying I'm going to wipe Barry Bonds from the record book, but nobody else. Right. You know, because I don't like him, and we know he used steroids, but he's the only one I'm going to wipe. doesn't make sense. If you're going to start wiping, you're going to start, you're going to end up doing a lot of wiping. You can't just do selective wiping. That's one reason. The other reason is it doesn't have anything to do with baseball. Right. If Major League Baseball had a rule that said, if you get a DUI, you can't be in the Hall of Fame, then fine. I, I would be fine with that. For example, if you bet on baseball, you can't be in the Hall of Fame. No problem. Pete Rose should not be in the Hall of Fame. He broke an explicit rule. Uh, you know, he deserves his lifetime ban. What what these guys did with the DUI has nothing to do with baseball. Let you know if the if the if our justice system decides that those guys need to go to jail for life, fine. Whatever the penalty is, the penalty is. It has nothing to do with baseball. Yeah, my stance is definitely that uh, you absolutely can and should hold a DUI against Todd Helton and Tony La Russa and everyone else, but at the same time has absolutely nothing to do with their Hall of Fame candidacy. I find DUI to be much worse than steroid use, but I also don't I, think that it should be affecting uh, their, their candidacy. That's what I meant, of course, when I was saying hold against them right. for their candidacy. What you think of them as people, what you think – how you think they should be penalized again by the justice system. That's totally separate. And I'm not making any comment on that. Um, I'm only talking about their considering them for the hall of fame or being banned from baseball or whatever. It's, it's nonsense to me. It's like, um, it's basically double jeopardy, right? That once a, once a player has been, been punished by baseball in whatever way baseball sees fit, I don't understand why fans or media members then say, well, I would like to add this additional baseball-related punishment beyond what the league they play in has already decided. It doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know. Yeah, the Hall of Fame process is all about double jeopardy, though. Yeah, that's true. Uh, absolutely. Oh, he was underappreciated, so he didn't win any Cy Youngs. Oh, well, now he's not getting in the Hall of Fame because he didn't win any Cy Youngs. <laughs> yeah, there are... There are many examples like that. Right. 
Um, anything else you want to touch on on the Veterans Committee voting? Oh, I actually had another question, which is you you were involved in uh, what was it? A Saber Committee that was researching 19th century players? Yes. And what, if anything, does that have to do with the, the Hall of Fame Veterans Committee for the pre-integration era? Nothing, or uh, they're actually not connected. But the original goal of this committee, uh, which was started by Joe Williams and Bob Gregory, uh, was to identify some of these 19th century overlooked legends, which is actually what what the committee is called, and. One of the goals was to kind of have like a almost like the Negro League committee to maybe have like a a group election of people that were overlooked. And so far, they've named one each year. And uh, Deacon White last year became the first one of those to get inducted, although Bill Dolan fell a couple of votes short uh, last year. We almost had four Hall of Famers from the pre-integration uh, era ballot. Uh, so I think. Bill Dolan's kind of a shoe in to get in on the next election, so he'll be the second one. Ross Barnes was chosen this year. The Hall of Fame has kind of overlooked him because he didn't technically have 10 years, although he played before 1871, so that shouldn't be held against him. But it's going to have, uh, you know, we've got a couple other candidates that are doing pretty well, like like Doc Adams, who could be seen more as a father of baseball than, you know, anybody that's out there like Alexander Cartwright or Abner Doubleday or anything. So it's just a, a really fun committee to kind of work on uh, some research and identify some of the early players that have been overlooked for a long time. And is it unofficially the idea that you're perhaps siphoning those results to the committee um, in the hopes that they will consider your arguments, or is that just – Lucky if that happens to happen. Right. It gets these players publicity, which will hopefully in turn get them on the Hall of Fame ballot. Because, you know, there's a lot of overlap between Sabre and the Hall of Fame process. So, Right. Interesting. I mean, it makes a lot of sense to me. I know it's a topic that you're interested in, and you would be happy to do just for fun, for, for hobby, the, the fact that it would actually have an impact on – uh, how these guys are remembered in the Hall of Fame is 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 gravy and it's great. And what was it you had said you you had contact with Deacon White's descendant? Was it his granddaughter? Uh, yeah, his great granddaughter ended up commenting great. on the Hall of Stats uh, blog post about uh, Deacon getting into the Hall of Fame, which was kind of cool. And uh, what does she have? What does she have to say? She just mentioned that uh, it, it was a wonderful day and that they're going to have a Deacon White Day over in, in, in his hometown, which um, Bob Gregory, who's on the Overlooked Legends Committee, he's actually going to attend as our, um, our our representation, so to speak. So she just kind of mentioned that and that it was a, a great day for them. Yeah, that's great. It must it must feel wonderful for you and for the other people involved. Oh, right, yeah. Uh, Joe Williams from the committee, he got to spend basically the entire Hall of Fame weekend with the family just to really celebrate with them, which is great. Yeah, it's, it's, it's wonderful. Your story there reminds me of something funny that happened with um, Gary... Thurman. Remember Gary Thurman? Uh, the name sounds familiar, but I'm not sure. So he was, he was Billy Hamilton before he was Billy Hamilton. He was, um. Oh, right, right. Okay. He was a Royals speedster 
um, in the late 80s who came up with the team, but he was sort of on base challenged. His career on base percentage was 297. And, um, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to steal bases, uh, if you can't get on base. Mm-hmm. So you remember when I started in the world of blogging, you may or may not remember, I started with the 88 Tops blog, which is still there on 88tops.blogspot.com, basically an archive form. I went through every single card in the 88 Tops set. Posted the card, posted something about the card, about the player, and all of that. And this was predating me working with the Baseball Reference blog. So I posted Gary's card, and I'm looking at the page right now. And you know how these Topps cards from the 80s have facts about the players? Um, you know, usually the like one or two lines of text under the stat line. So the back of Gary Thurman's card says, he and twin sister have triplet brothers and sister. Wow. Once again, he and twin sister have triplet brothers and sister. So I posted this card, and somebody uh, made a comment saying, I can't figure out that fact toward the life of me. How many kids are there, and whose kids are they, and who was going to St. Ives? <laughs> so then I responded, there are five kids, Factoid saying that Thurman's mother got pregnant and had twins, which was Gary Thurman and his twin sister. And she had another pregnancy where she had triplets, two boys and a girl. So Gary Thurman has a sister who is a twin to him and three other siblings who are triplets to each other. So then there, I'm just reading down here, there's a bunch of other comments that are related to other things. And, it, oh, so in the original post, I noted how the picture of Gary Thurman looks like Arsenio Hall. Some, you know, go ahead and on the podcast, I can't show it, but if someone calls up the EDA Tops card, you'll see it looks like Arsenio Hall. So then down, someone posted, M. Thurman posted, um, hey, the real facts about Gary and his siblings are that he has a twin sister, Monica, and he also has triplet sisters and brother, Lynette, Latress, and Lamont. I know because I'm one of the triplets. <laughs> um... And then she posted, this is not a picture of Arsenio Hall. It's my brother Gary. Andy, whoever you are, you are wrong. I guess she didn't uh, realize that it was a joke. Nice. So then I, I responded to her and said, hey, I'm only joking, whatever, whatever. So then someone named Amy Lee posted, hey, this isn't that important at all, I, but I used to date Gary Thurman when he played for the Kansas City Royals, and I noticed his sister was on here at some point. Please tell him Amy from Ottawa says hi. So then someone named L. Thurman, a different from the M. Thurman who posted before, said, and this is 2008, so this information is maybe out of date, says, Gary's doing fine. He's a coach for the Cleveland Indians minor league organization, and last year was the first base coach for the Seattle Mariners, blah, 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 blah. So then um, someone else named JY1043 posted, Gary, if you read these blogs, it's your old teammate, John Yowler. I've been following your coaching career. Blah, blah, blah. He puts his email address. It just keeps going on and on. And there there are just several other posts on there from people who knew him or wanted to say hi or whatever. just goes on and on. I I found it really, really funny and and strange. So it's not as cool as your experience of actually getting to meet people who, um, you know, have a real direct connection for a real reason to be happy. 
Um, but but it was funny nevertheless. I love those stories. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's one of the great things about the Internet, and, and especially about Twitter, is that you can actually have interactions with these people because they can do it in a much more controlled way. Um, I mean, when it used to be that your only way of talking to a famous person was to show up at, you know, stalk them or show up at a at a conference or an event or something that they're at or whatever, you know, and people had to be very reserved, right, and keep a real distance, sometimes even a physical distance between them and people because you don't know what people are going to say or do. Right. But on Twitter, if you're reasonable and you're nice, you can approach someone and you can actually get a response because they can control it. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a great thing, I think. Uh, it's one of the best things about the Internet in general. Batting first, playing third base, number 14, Pete Rose. Moving on, I wanted to get your thoughts on the playoffs and the playoff format. I am finding that I am loving this new wildcard format. When the wildcard was first introduced in the 90s, I sort of had a problem with it because I said, if you're not good enough to win your division, why do you get to be in the playoffs? And I could kind of see that there were some divisions that were very strong, and so a team that had a high win total that finished in second, sometimes those teams really deserved it, but it, it kind of bothered me. And when the second wildcard team was added starting last year, and then the two wildcard teams have to play a one-game playoff, I immediately felt so much more comfortable with that, where you're saying, hey, if you finish second or third in the league, we're going to give you a shot. But those teams are at a major disadvantage. First of all, they have to go through a single elimination game to make it to the divisional round of the playoffs. And secondly, they have to you know, use an extra pitcher. They might have to throw their ace in that one-game playoff or whatever, they go into a division series. The winner of that wild card playoff goes into a uh, division series game at a major disadvantage versus the team who both has a home field advantage in that series and has been able to rest their players and, and line up the rotation. I I like that so much better. What are your thoughts? I very much agree. I mean, I wasn't a huge fan of an extra team making it to the postseason and the postseason being longer than it already is, but it's really compelling that they actually do have a true disadvantage for the wild card now. There was really nothing stopping the wild card. I mean, you could just kind of coast into the wild card spot instead of going for first place. There wasn't really any key advantage. I remember a lot of talk between the Red Sox and Yankees about that. Oh, they're going to get in the playoffs anyway, so it doesn't really matter. But now it does really matter because you've got to win that one game, and you got to use up all your best guys, best pitcher, definitely. And it, yeah, and there were there were even years when I remember hearing talk that a division leader like the Yankees or the Red Sox would actually try to play for second place because they preferred the matchup they were going to get um, in the playoffs. And home field advantage doesn't matter that much in baseball compared to let's say football. Uh, so. I totally agree. Winning the division should be of the utmost importance. 
And it doesn't even really make the season longer, maybe by a day, right? It, I can't remember exactly how they work it, but it, it, uh, they don't give a lot of time to that team that has to play that, that wild card. No, they really don't. Playoff game. I've also heard the argument made against this system of, oh, it's not fair. Teams play the whole season and then you suddenly have it all riding on one game, this one wild card playoff game. It's not fair. But that's not really true, right? right? Before the days of the wild card, there were tons of years when it came down to the final day of the season. And one game and you won your division, you won, you run your division, you lost, you're out. So what difference does it make if you now extend that one game to a playoff game between the second and third best team? It's not like you're saying the team with the best overall record in baseball has to go into this one game um do or die, and may potentially be knocked out. No, you're talking about teams that only had, um, you know, the best, second and third best records after the division winners. It's not, uh, it seems totally reasonable to me. Right, plus there's a way to avoid that, and that's win the division. You know, if they made, if they made everybody do the one-game playoff, that would not be fair because it's like, look, I played this whole year to win the division. Now I'm stuck in this one-game playoff. That would not be cool. But this, you know, you didn't win the division. So now you've got to do this one one game playoff, and I think that that's a good trade off. To me, it's it's remarkably better than it, than the the previous system there for the whatever eight seventeen or eighteen years, wherever that system was in place. It's uh, this one is remarkably better. It's not marginally better. It's remarkably better. Um, it 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 does allow a couple more teams, I think, to remain. Uh, hopeful of making the playoffs a little bit later in the season without removing it completely the drama of the division races. Sure, there, there are numerous division races right now here in mid-September that are over. Um, there's no question of, uh, of who's going to win their division, but it keeps some drama there for sure. So uh, I will tell you, though, the one thing about the playoffs that really, really irks me and this is not new, this has been going on for a long time, which is all the off dates. Um, and it's because of this notion, getting back to what you just said, actually, which is you play 162 a certain way with a fairly small number of off days. What teams have, what is it, about 25 off days during the year, maybe something like that? I can't remember. But, you know, Six out of seven days, they're playing most of the time, right. sometimes seven out of seven. And then you go to these playoffs where you never play more than back-to-back games. And teams need to carry fewer pitchers, and teams need to have fewer starters because of this. So I don't understand. You have to play a certain way with a certain kind of roster and a certain number of starting pitchers to win 162 games, but then when it comes to seven-game playoff series, you get to play a totally different way. And it really bothers me. And the counter-argument that I've gotten from some people recently is, yeah, but it's the same for all teams. And I say, yes, except it's a different formula for success. Right. You know, a team like uh, the 98 Yankees or the Mariners from a few years before that that wins a ridiculous number of games because they have an incredibly strong pitching staff, they should carry that same advantage into the playoffs. 
not go up against another team that has two really good starters and be more evenly matched because the, that weaker team needs to use only those two guys plus one other starter as opposed to having to cycle through all five guys. it This really bothers me. So I, I have some theories on what could be done, but what what's your opinion on this issue? Uh, I mean, it does promote different roster construction because there's no need for a fifth starter and things like that. I mean, that's going to be interesting for the Red Sox where they actually have, you know, six formidable starters, but they're really only going to be able to carry four and then have one of them as a long man and one probably very good pitcher not make the playoff ro- uh, playoff roster at all. So, right, and Quentin, and Quentin Berry will make it. Right. And he'll be used as a pinch runner like the Reds will use Billy Hamilton. Right. Uh, so... It is different, um, kind of like how the 40-man rosters make September difference. Um, I'm not positive I'm opposed to it. Um, yeah, I it, mean... It just bothers me. It really bothers me. Because you look at the other sports um, and the playoffs, the other major professional sports, and I know you're not a, a big fan of of many other professional sports, but bear with me, you look at hockey and basketball and football, the playoffs are very representative of the regular season. NFL football, you only play 16 games, and then you play single elimination uh, uh, football game, playoff games. Jeez. Single elimination playoff games. And you think about their season of 16 games, baseball season of 162 games, if it were going to be similar Baseball should be playing a 10-game playoff series. Now, obviously, you're not going to play 10 because you could have a tie. So let's say make it 11 instead of 7. Or 9, how it started. Right. But here's my theory. Baseball has all these off days for two reasons. One reason is so that the better pitchers can get in more games and be a bigger draw because, you know, are are people going to want to tune in to see – Ryan Dempster versus whoever the Dodgers' fifth starter is, or are they going to get a bigger audience if it cycles back to Kershaw versus Lester uh, more often? You know, they're going to get bigger audiences if they have the star pitchers going more often. That's one reason. And the other reason is they want to have more games on days that draw bigger audiences. They don't want to have Sunday playoff games, Sunday night, because people don't watch TV Sunday night. They want to have them on Fridays and Saturdays and other days during the week, and so they put in all these extra off days to shunt as many games as they can to those prime viewing days. So my theory is make the series 11 games instead of 7. Have, so best of 11, obviously whoever wins six, first six wins the series, and then you'll have just as many games on big rating days and just as many games with big pitchers but you'll have, and in fact, you'll have more revenue from more playoff games, more gate, more TV time, etc. And you will then have a playoff series that is representative of the regular season. And there'll be something to it, to constructing your roster for the playoffs the same way as you construct your roster for the, the regular season. So that's, that's my hang-up. But I know other people aren't hung up on that. They say, yes, different different rules in the playoffs, I don't care. Rules are the same for all the teams. What were you going to say? How do you feel about doing something like this in all three rounds, though? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a problem because it's just baseball will be going on for so long. If it were me, I would shorten the regular season. I would go back to 154. I would keep the single game wild card elimination game, and then I would have uh, three rounds of best of 11 um, following that, or maybe a best of nine, best of 11, best of 11, something like that, you know. But my point is just adding more games there. I, I feel like overall that would just be a much better system. That would be fairer, still very exciting, but also much more representative of the true quality of the teams. You know, the notion that Billy Hamilton and, and Quentin Barry are going to be on their team's playoff rosters this year, uh, yeah, all well, the Reds are definitely going to make it. It's just a question of as what. Um, those guys are definitely going to be on their team's playoff rosters. They're going to appear in games this year. And it's going to be exciting. I mean, what what could what could be more exciting than Billy Hamilton pinch running in the bottom of the eighth or ninth of a game when you know he's in there to run? Right. Very exciting. But there's part of me that still says this annoys me because this is not the strategy the team would use during the regular season to win games. Obviously, September notwithstanding, it just it just bothers me. I can't. Describe it any better than that. Um, I, I I don't have a problem with them using Billy Hamilton that way, but if they're going to do it, they should have used him all year long. Carry one fewer pitcher and carry you know carry a Herb Washington and use him like that. Um, a far more effective Herb Washington, I might add. Anyway, I don't know that. Those are just my thoughts on that. You know, I, I understand both the pros and the cons. I'm not that against it. I. I'm also kind of a, a fan of tradition, so I kind of like keeping things similar to how they are, unless you – I'm not a, I'm not really a tinkerer, so I know. Yeah. Boring answer. I'm a boring No, fan, that's though. fine. That's fine. Um, you know, like a lot of things in baseball, uh, people have their opinions, and they're not necessarily for really cogent, uh, logical arguments that, that we can make, and I – I can't make a really cogent, logical argument for why I want it to be the way it is. Um, it just seems to annoy me. No, it does annoy me that it seems that the vast majority of these decisions by Major League Baseball in terms of roster rules, off days, all the rest of that, it's all designed to maximize revenue to maximize excitement, to maximize um, uh, just that, attention, excitement, entertainment, value. And it's sort of regardless of whether it makes things more or less fair. What I see in the NFL is they also seek to maximize entertainment but they recognize that they can't compromise the fairness of the game by suddenly changing the rules in the playoffs to favor teams that have done things differently from how they did them in the regular season. To me, that's a loss of integrity that turns me off. As much as I would love to see Billy Hamilton, you know, come in as a pinch runner um, in a playoff game, it, uh, it, it just turns me off.
Would you say you're more familiar with the Marlins or the Rockies? Uh, probably the Rockies. I don't, I'm not. I don't follow either of them all that closely. Although I do kind of keep an eye on Nolan Arenado. Yeah, I mean, so I mean in general since their beginnings. Oh, um, probably Rockies. To me, this is a fun game. Um, is to just try to name the managers of the Rockies since their inception in order. I'm looking at the list. Can you remember who their first manager was? Don Baylor, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Don, 93 through 98, Don Baylor. And you remember who took over for a year after that? After Don Baylor. No, I don't. It's a guy who uh, will probably be managing – We'll definitely be managing in the playoffs this year. Uh, Jim Leland ah. took over for a year. Um, of course, he also managed the Marlins. After Jim Leland was the guy we mentioned earlier in this podcast who's on the expansion era Hall of Fame ballot, a third baseman. Uh, that'd be Buddy Bell? That's right, right yeah. Buddy Bell. And then the hitting coach who took over from him, Clint Hurdle. Yeah, Clint Hurdle for a while there. For was, quite a while. Then it was Jim Tracy, right? Then it was Jim Tracy, and now it's Walt Weiss. Um, that's that's a somewhat easier managerial history than the Marlins. Mm-hmm. So how many is that? That's um, one, two, three, four, five, six. Only six managers for the Rockies in their history. The Marlins have way more. The Marlins have one, two, three, four, five. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. <laughs> In the same number of years. Do you remember their first manager? Uh, it wasn't Jim Leland, um, although he did manage there. Yeah, he was their second official manager, as he was Rocky's second official manager, Renee Latchman. Um, oh, Lashman, okay. It's totally forgettable. Because I, um, I know Leland, obviously Gonzalez, um, McKeon. Right, McKeon a couple times. Yeah, they had Torborg, right? Oh, Ozzie Guillen was there for a little while. Guillen. Yeah, let's let's go in order there. You've named, you've named a lot of them. But when Lashman was fired, Cookie Rojas filled in for one game, which is, if you, if you know that, you're amazing. And then... Do you remember what really odd pick took over for uh, the remainder of that year? A guy who took over and then came back and managed them again later for three for three years. And I'm trying to remember who he was. Was he a GM as well? John Bowles, remember him? Oh God, vaguely. No, no. Yeah, so he managed them for the remainder of '96, and then. Leland came in for seventy uh, for ninety seven and ninety eight, and then Bowles for uh, ninety nine through two thousand and one. Before he was fired and replaced by a Hall of Famer, you remember that? Oh, when Hall of Famer replaced him, a Hall of Fame player or manager? Yeah, Hall of Fame player. Player. Oh God, I don't know. Tony Perez. Tony. Tony Perez, really? Yeah. Man, 
He managed them for 114 games there at the end of uh, 2001. Wow. I had absolutely no idea that Tony Perez actually ever managed. Yeah. Yeah, he managed the Reds for a little bit too, didn't he? Um, yeah, he managed the Reds at the beginning of 93, huh. uh, went 20 and 24, and then was fired, and uh, Davey Johnson was brought in. Oh, nice. Davey Johnson, remember that was when he was in the mop-up portion of his career, coming in for fired people like uh, Jim Riggleman. I guess he wasn't, Riggleman wasn't fired, was he? But um, So then Torborg took over in 2002, and then you remember he was fired in 2003. McKeon was brought on okay. and went on to the World Series. Didn't Joe Girardi have a year or two, and then he was kind of strangely not right. brought back? So then, so then McKeon stayed on for 04 and 05. Then Girardi in 06 won manager of the year and was fired, <laughs> which might happen again this year. It's possible. Freddie Gonzalez took over. Then when Freddie Gonzalez was fired in 2010, uh, Edwin Rodriguez uh, took over for that year and then the first half of the next year. Brandon Hyde coached them, managed them for one game. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Then Jack McKeon back again. Oh, that's right. McKeon came back. For the second half of uh, 2011. Then Ozzie Guillen for the disaster of 2012. And then Mike Redman this year, um, who's even more of a disaster, although at least he's his behavior, he's not a disaster, even though the team is a disaster. Um, it's just incredible. That's a lot of um, managers. Yeah, and here's amazing. Looking at the list of who their top player was by wins above replacement um, over these years, it's just an incredible list, if only because of all the different guys. Their first year, the player who led them in wins above replacement was Brian Harvey, their closer. Then it was Jeff Conine, who's very underrated, Chris Hammond, Kevin Brown for a couple of years, Mark Kotze, Alex Fernandez, oh Luis Castillo, Cliff Floyd, A.J. Burnett, Dontrell Willis, Carl Pavano, Dontrell Willis again. And then we get into the modern era. Miguel Cabrera, Ramirez for a couple of years, Josh Johnson for a couple of years, Giancarlo Stanton for a couple of years, and then uh, Fernandez this year. How many years was Cabrera? Just one. Oh, really? Okay. Um, just one in 2006. Um, I'm sure he was close in some other years, but we forget, of course, how much of a better player. Not that he was bad with the Marlins, but he's um he's otherworldly with uh. Well, yeah, his his power is way up. He had the the batting averages with with uh, the Marlins, like even better batting averages than when he first came with the Tigers, I believe. But um, right in in 2005, he had 5.2. Wins above replacement for the Marlins, but the uh, I'm just looking it up here. Um, who was it? Willis who had more? Uh, scroll down, not up. Um, yeah, Dontrell Willis had 7.2, so he was uh, he was way in the lead um, that year. So yeah, Cabrera just got aced out of it a little bit, but some of those early years. I just want to look at the same thing for the Rockies, who their leading players were. I know the first year it was Galarraga. 
Yeah, oh my God. If you could get who had the most uh, wins above replacement for the 1994 Rockies, I will just give you my house. 1994 Rockies? I will continue to pay the mortgage for the next however many years. I don't, and, I don't know. Uh, Jeffrey Hammonds? I don't know. As Marvin Freeman. You were so close. <laughs> Marvin Freeman. Holy crap. <laughs> how, many, how many guesses would it have taken you to get that? Then uh, Larry Walker, Ellis Burks, then Walker, Walker, Pedro Astacio, then a string of Helton for six years, then uh, Garrett Atkins, Tulowitzki, Holiday, Tulowitzki, Jimenez, Tulowitzki, Fowler, and Chassin this year. Uh, interestingly. Anyway, uh, I've covered everything I wanted to cover. You have anything else on your mind? No, I think that's it. I would just want to throw out there while you're looking at manager lists, a fun one to look at is always the twins because every other team has so much change. And then they had, you know, two guys for just this huge amount of time. Right. Um, there are other teams like that. I'm just, I'm just looking at it now. Yeah. I mean, garden hire and Kelly only two going all the way back to 87. Yeah. Um, but who else, um, who else was like that? The Cardinals? Was it? Not really. I mean, sort of. The Cardinals had Larusa for bazillions of years. They had Tory for five years, and then Whitey Herzog for what is that? About nine nine years before that. I don't know if you, uh, which is, if you want to see an impressive one. Uh, go to Oakland and scroll all the way down. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Connie Mack. Now, the Dodgers were like that, too. Oh, they had Alston uh, and then... Um, Lasorda. Yeah, uh, Lasorda, yeah. Lasorda. Yeah, Larissa Lasorda. Yeah, right, that. from 1954 to 1996. Bill Russell. Right, and they had Bill Russell just at the tail end of 96 there. But from from 54 through... 96, 95, 54 through 95 had only two managers. What happened in 76? Did Lasorda take over for the last four games, or did Alston have to step away during the season for four games and Lasorda stepped in? Do you know? Um, I'm going to look at that. I'm, I'm guessing he stepped away. Yeah, kind of odd that he would leave for the last four games. Yeah, especially because they finished 92 and 70. It looks like Lasorda managed the last four games of the year. What was Lasorda's role with the team before manager? Oh, I'm turning the quiz on you. I don't know. I can look it up, which is what I'm doing right now. Right. So he was um, he was the manager with the with the Montreal team. Yeah, he was um, a coach for Alston, serving as Alston's understudy from 73 right. to 76. So I, I guess maybe bench coach. They just say coach on the, the play index. Uh, not play and index, the uh, bullpen. Right, and then in the bullpen there, it says Alston retired September 29th, 1976. Yeah, he must have just filled in for four games or something during the year. Right. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder why he didn't stay till the end. I wonder if he just really wanted to go, or if he wanted to give um, Lasorda a chance to get in. Let's see if it says on his bullpen. Yeah, I'm wondering if it was actually during the year, though, and maybe not at the end. No, no, no. Here you go. Name manager of the year six times. Also also guided a victorious NL All-Star squad a record seven times. He retired with a few games left in the 1976 season with 
2,040 wins, ceding the job to longtime Tommy Lasorda, who would hold it until 1995. It's not true. It was 1996. Um, that's all it says. So They finished... Nine games out. I was wondering if maybe he waited till they were eliminated or something. Well, I don't know. Interesting. Could be. All right, sir. Thank you for your time. Oh, no problem. And, uh, we'll uh, talk again soon. All right. Thanks. Batting third, the catcher, number fifteen, Herman Munson. There you have it, High Sats Podcast number 11. Now here's something really cool. In between the time that we recorded this podcast and when I'm recording this little outro, uh, our friend Adam was actually named the new chair of the Sabre 19th Century Overlooked Legends Committee. That was the thing that we were talking about there at the end of that first segment. Uh, Pretty cool and great to see a guy like Adam moving on up in the world i don't really know anyone in the world of baseball more deserving than adam um that's about it uh for us this time and uh see you again soon be lucky